Well, welcome everyone. <clears throat> this is a new experience for us. Uh, this is the fifth week of our practice period. And as you know, yesterday it started snowing and it's just kept snowing. And so this is the first time we've ever met by video conference. So I'm recording this starting now so that people who want to listen later can join us or watch it later. Um, so welcome to the people who are watching who were here uh, when we first did this. So let's review a little bit. We uh, are looking at the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths are suffering exists, that's number one. Number two, there's a path to our suffering, a reason, causes for it. Number three, liberation exists. And the fourth noble truth, there's a path to liberation. So we've spent the first four weeks on the first noble truth that suffering exists. And today we get to move on to the second and the third. So we're gonna try and cover two of them in one go here. Uh, and there's, there's a little bit of um, method to this, so it's not like we're just shortchanging them. Uh, because we have, we'll, sp we'll sp spend the rest of our time the last few weeks on the path to, to liberation, because that's really important. So it'll be a little bit of a, a short version. Um, but the full version of this second noble truth that there's a path to suffering is really important and it's vast, it's huge. And we can't hope to begin to cover it here. So what I hope to do tonight is to give us an introduction and simplify things down to something that we can bite off in one sitting. But this really could be a, a year long practice period for us on just this one. It's, it's such a important and rich uh, noble truth. So the Buddha said, or we think he said, that I teach suffering and the end of suffering. And that's it. That's what he teaches, suffering and the end of suffering. So we are going to look at the end of suffering tonight. Uh, there's, a, there's quite um, a literature around this. And in the discourse on the middle way, there's outlined what's called the 12 links of dependent arising. And this is a detailed explanation of how suffering actually arises in us. So I just wanna read this paragraph out of this discourse. So you get a sense of, of what these 12 links are, and knowing we're not gonna to touch on all of them. So it, it says this, because there is ignorance, there are impulses. Because there are impulses, there is consciousness. Because there is consciousness, there is the psyche soma. Because there is the psyche soma, there are the six senses. Because there are the six senses, there is contact. Because there is contact, there is feeling. Because there is feeling, there is craving. Because there is craving, there is grasping. Because there is grasping, there is becoming. Because there is becoming, there is birth. Because there is birth, there are old age, death, grief, and sorrow. This is how the entire mass of suffering arises. 
So I read that for years and it made absolutely no sense to me whatsoever. And um, I'm, I'm guessing that listening to me read those words, it probably makes no sense whatsoever. <clears throat> it's very complicated, but we're gonna simplify things. We're gonna take a look at just a small subset of that tonight. And then I'm gonna take that subset and I'm gonna bring it down to two different concepts that we can maybe walk away with and, and hold in our practice. So this Buddhist psychology that this, um, that this arises from is, is very complicated and detailed. And it existed long before Western psychology. It's, a, it's very, very interesting. And I hope that um, you'll grow to love it as much as I have, how much it's been transformative to me to actually understand how the mind works. And Buddhist psychology is sort of the equivalent to Chinese medicine in that Chinese medicine uh, looks at individual experience, sees cause and effect, and then notes that. Not so worried about understanding what, why it happens that way, just noticing that it does. And in Western medicine, we wanna know exactly how it works, and we're not interested so much in personal experience. So this Buddhist psychology bases on personal experience. This was the personal experience of the Buddha looking at how suffering arose in him. And he said, aha, it works this way in me, it must work this way in other people. So his genius was to look with very, very close detail as a scientist would look. And so he came out with this, this very detailed path that takes a long time to really understand in the same way he understood it. So I'm gonna just talk about six of those 12 tonight. I'm gonna to start with contact and then feeling, craving, grasping, becoming, and birth and death. So let's, let's get a sense of what that is. So let's start with contact. Uh, we have six senses. Now in the Western way of thinking, we have five. But in Buddhist psychology, the mind is considered a sense as well. So we have sense organs that receive sensory input, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, skin. We, and we, but we also have the mind. And the mind is generating thoughts all the time. And so you can think of the mind generating thoughts in the same way that um, um, the visual world around us is generating things for us to see. We sense those. Well, the mind is generating thoughts and we sense those. So that's why there's six senses in Buddhism. And we contact the world through those senses. It's just a basic and sort of physical fact of our existence as a human being. We wouldn't know there was a world without these six senses and the world comes to us through the six senses. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna sort of tie this together with a story all the way through. So imagine that you're sitting in meditation and back pain arises in you. You become aware of back pain. This is contact. You now have contact with the sense of feeling and that feeling that what you're feeling is the back pain. Clear enough? Yeah. Okay, so that's the basic contact with the senses. So that leads immediately to the next um, of the 12 links, which is feeling. So feeling is the evaluation that arises as soon as we have contact from our senses. So it can arise as, oh, 
I evaluate this as a pleasant experience or an unpleasant experience or a neutral experience. Now this, um, this evaluation is not the same for every person. You know, what I experience uh, from my visual field, if we're looking at the same thing, I might have a different experience of that than you standing right next to me. So it's really determined a lot by our um, history and the way our, our minds have been, become wired. We call those mental formations. So for instance, um, my sister and I, if we are standing in the same place and we see a horse, my sister will go, oh, a horse. And I'll go, oh, a horse. You know, because she grew up loving to ride horses and I grew up afraid of horses. So we, it's not just that we have some neutral experience of a feeling. We have a feeling that's conditioned by our past history. Okay. So back to our back pain. If we are sitting in meditation and uh, we have contact with the back pain, then the feeling aspect that arises right after is the evaluation we give to it. So we can evaluate that as negative or positive or neutral. Now, if we called it pain, we're probably already evaluating it as negative, but we might experience that contact as, as a sensation in our back. And so that might be a neutral feeling, or we might evaluate it as a positive feeling. It might be kind of a, a, a something maybe warm. So we could say positive. So, so that's contact and then feeling. And what comes right after that, what comes right after feeling usually is some kind of craving. So when I talk about craving, um, I don't just mean we want things that, that we evaluate as positive and get more of them. I also mean we can have a negative craving. We take the things that we've evaluated as, as negative and we want to push them away. So I'm going to use the same word. I'm just going to keep using the word craving, but please understand that it can be either the kind of craving that says, I want more of that, or the kind of craving that says, I want less of that. I crave its absence. So contact with the senses leads to the evaluation of feeling, which leads right to craving. And this is where our desire starts to creep in. It's no longer just a bare feeling anymore. It's not just that initial sensation of back pain it's now getting, getting mixed up with our desire for it or our desire for it to go away. We begin to want to change the experience. With feeling and with craving, I mean, with feeling and with contact, we haven't yet decided we wanted to change it. It's just, it just is. But once we go into craving, we want to change it. This is where we begin to choose whether or not this is an experience that we're going to amplify or diminish. So with our back pain example, so you're sitting there, there's a sensation of back pain. There's the evaluation that this pain is unpleasant. And now with craving, you start to think, hmm, I don't like that. Maybe shifting my position will make the pain go away. So you start to think about maybe changing the reality instead of just being with the reality. 
Now, often very, very quickly, when you're in that craving stage, the craving really takes off and gets amplified. And that's when it turns into grasping. And they call it grasping. With craving, it's still, you, you feel this desire for it or this urge against it, but at that point, you could let go of that. Once it grows into grasping, it takes over. Your mind becomes imprisoned by grasping. You, you, you no longer just want to act. You begin to believe that your entire well-being is at stake if you don't act. So now if you're grasping this at this back pain, you now start to think things like, I have to move. When will that jerk ring the bell? I can't take this one second longer. I can't meditate, I'm a failure. You know, all these kinds of, all these kinds of thoughts, all of a sudden you're beginning to be wrapped up in this experience. So this is where our suffering really begins to become apparent. All grasping leads to suffering. That's a pretty big statement. All grasping leads to suffering. But this is where our suffering really takes off, really takes off and, and uh, becomes something. You know, we usually equate our suffering with the underlying feeling so we might equate our suffering with the fact that we initially perceived some back pain while we're meditating, but that's not our suffering. Our suffering is the grasping that comes up as a result of that, that says, this needs to change. I'm not okay unless this changes. That's the real suffering. We don't suffer from the pain we suffer from the story that we tell about the pain. So when we grasp at what we crave, life as it is becomes unacceptable. We start living and with this hidden demand that life be different than it is, and you suffer and you cause our others to suffer. This grasping really is the heart of our suffering. So very quickly then, as we are grasping at something, we enter the stage of becoming. All of a sudden, it's not just back pain, it's my back pain. It's not just uncomfortable, I am uncomfortable. We become a separate self. This is where the I is generated. It's not a feeling, it's my feeling. It belongs to me, and I need to do something about it. So becoming leads right away to birth and death. You know, the, the Buddha talked about um, that liberation was freeing ourselves from the endless round of birth and death. And this is what he was talking about. He wasn't just talking about the birth and death of our bodies. He was talking about the birth and death of the I that gets generated when we grasp after something. We grasp after, after something and it makes us the one who needs it to change. We've suddenly become an I. 
So this I that we've just allowed to be born, now this I needs a special bench or a cushion so that the back pain doesn't come back. This I anticipates the back pain arriving at the next sitting or the next moment. This I has to protect itself at the very first hint of pain. Can't be with the feeling anymore at all. It's about protecting the I. Uh, this I, it spins a story about why meditation is not a practice for me. I am too old for this. This isn't right for me. I, I can't handle this pain. And pretty soon this I just stops meditating altogether. From this little sensation, we've created a self. It's an amazing process. And it happens usually in an instant before we're even aware of it. So this I that we're created suffers a lot because it knows at some level that, that it is impermanent. It has been created, so there is a chance that it will die. So our lives become all about protecting this sense of self, protecting this I. So we create those mental formations that I mentioned at the very beginning when we first started to evaluate, first started to feel the sensation and evaluate whether it was good or bad. This is the I that's creating those mental formations way back at the first step. And those thoughts and perceptions um, become the filter through which we experience the world. So this cycle is insidious. And the reason that the Buddha went into such detail in helping us see this cycle is because if we can begin to see it, then we can notice when it's arising. It doesn't just move exactly from perception of, of input and feeling to the creation of an eye and the protection of an eye. We can begin to see the steps in the middle. And it takes a long time, it's not instant, but it's very, very useful. And the lovely thing about it is that when we do begin to see this, this process, we can break it at any point and the whole sense of suffering falls apart. It's just amazing. Hmm, it's lovely. So let's simplify this whole thing even further. So that was simplifying it down to six steps. Let's simplify those six steps down to just two steps, because I think that's, that makes it even easier to see it, especially at first, especially at first. So those two, those two elements are desire and attachment. Okay, so we can think of this just as a desire and attachment. It is possible for us to desire without being attached to what we desire or to the process of desiring. This is possible. When we're caught in that cycle of becoming and suffering, it doesn't feel possible, but it is possible. It is possible to feel your own desire without reflexively grasping and attaching to it. 
we have to begin to know the sensations of desire in order to uh, break that cycle of automatic uh, um, attraction and, and attachment. So when we know what, the, what desire feels like, we can just rest right there. We can feel the desire without being imprisoned by attaching to the desire. We recognize that desire arises because of causes and conditions. In some ways, we're not responsible for the things that we desire. We're conditioned by our own lives, but we're also conditioned by our culture, by our family and our society. So sometimes desiring is just automatic. I spend a lot of my, my life desiring the taste of meat. And then I stopped eating meat quite some time ago. And if I smell meat cooking now, desire for meat does not arise. In fact, sometimes now um, the desire that that smell not be present is what arises in me. I don't find it any more attractive to think about eating a hamburger than I do to think about eating a cockroach. You know, neither one sound appealing to me at all. <clears throat> so so I, you, we, in some ways, we condition what arises in us as desire. Um, <clears throat> so the other day, I was drinking a, a smoothie that was made with crushed ice and ground up really fine. And as I, as I took a sip of it, I started to get a cold headache. You know those things that they just like brain freeze? And uh, I desired that it not be there, but I didn't feel attachment to that to that desire. I could just sit with that feeling and I could rising of the pain, the dwelling of the pain and the fading of the pain without getting attached into changing it, without, without taking the attachment step. So I could feel the desire to this not be here, but I didn't feel the need to jump up and down and complain and say, oh my head, oh my head, oh my head, oh my head. You know, that's kind of things that we that we that we like to do when we're when we take the next step about really suffering. I didn't suffer when the pain was in my head. I know it was there and I desired that it not be there, but I didn't suffer. I didn't take the next step and fight it. It was just simply was. I told the story um uh, a couple of weeks ago about um, Ajahn Sumado, who, who I, uh, I really liked the way he put this. And I think this illustrates it really well. So he was a monk in Ajahn Chah's monastery in Thailand. And this group of people came and one of the people in this group was a young woman who was very attractive. And so um, the monks noticed that she was an attractive woman. And when, when she left, Ajahn Chah asked Ajahn Sumedho, so what did you think of this young woman? And, and he said, I like, but I don't want. 
And I thought that was really, that was really beautiful. He was not trying to deny that he found this person attractive, but he also didn't attach to that desire. He didn't attach a sense of self to it that said, I won't be happy unless I meet this young woman. I won't be happy as a monk if I can't, if I can't make her my partner or something like that. He, he just saw desire was present, but I didn't follow that desire. And that's a real freedom. Desire is inevitable, but our suffering is not inevitable. Desire will come up, aversion will come up, but we don't have to attach to it. We can be with it and see that it comes and goes. And that saying, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. That's really what this is talking about. There, we have human bodies and our human bodies will experience pain. We will have painful thoughts. We will have thoughts that draw us, uh, that want to draw us out of being present. But we don't have to attach to them. And in doing that over and over and over again, watching what's happening, experiencing your desire or your aversion, and not attaching to it, slowly, bit by bit, things shift. And the, the, you learn for yourself that desires are impermanent, they come and go. They're not really yours. They're just artifacts of the life we're living. As humans, as members of the society, as members of this family, as men and women, as the roles we play, all those, all those lead to what feels desirable to us or what feels like an aversion to us. But we don't have to follow. It's quite, it's quite an amazing liberation to practice that. Our suffering follows when we attach to our desires. It's not in the desires themselves. So, Dharma, we talk about this word Dharma a lot. Dharma means truth. Just a simple translation, Dharma is truth. And this truth is the path that leads us from suffering. Now it's the lack of truth when we believe that our desires are true and that we have to attach to them. That's the lack of being with the truth. The truth is that, that they are not, we, it is not inevitable that we follow our desires. We don't have to attach to them. So the goal of our practice, and we call our practice the path of the Dharma, the path of truth. The goal of our practice is knowing the truth is of what is present without being attached to what is present. It's not turning away from what is present and thinking that saves us from ever feeling any desire. No, it's actually knowing the truth of what is present without being coming attached to it. The Buddha taught himself this because he, he grew up in a life of luxury where all his desires were satisfied and he wasn't happy. 
So he thought, ah, happiness must come if I cut off all desires. So he practiced asceticism. He, he cut off the, 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 having a food, of shelter, all the things that you would think that would be comfort, a bit comforting, he actively got rid of. And he almost killed himself with this. And he saw that that too is not the path to liberation. It's not about whether or not you desire something, it's whether you attach to it. So our practice, our way out of this truth of suffering is, is beautifully encapsulated by the three word phrase, this is it, this is it. Pain is present, I allow it to be as it is. Pleasure is present, I allow it to be as it is. Desire is present, aversion is present, grasping is present. I let them all be without attaching to them. This is it, is the path of mindfulness. So let's break the three words down. So this. This means what we have contact and feelings about. This. This is the first part of those six steps. The contact and the feeling. That is this. It's whatever is happening in our life. It's what we're sensing. It's what we're thinking. It's what we're experiencing. All that is this. And we're aware of it. We're aware of it just like it is. So this is. Is is in the present tense. This has to happen in the present tense. We don't say this was it or this will be it. This is it right now, here and now. We can only deal with life as it is right in front of us. Not as we're thinking about what, how it was or imagining what it will be. It has to be right now. And then it. It is the truth that's revealed by our bodily experience in the present moment. We let go of everything else. So this is it means this is liberation. The it we experience is the truth of our bodily experience without any attachments or clinging. That, that very awareness is liberation itself. So what is happening in the present moment when we are unattached to it, we are free. We can be with things just as they are. It is a lovely, lovely place to dwell. This is it, helps us dwell with awareness in the here and now without attachment or aversion. Mm, so lovely. So we know that we're suffering because we are no longer in this is it. We're in something that was, or that will be. So no, that will be horrible. I will be unhappy. My mother was mean to me. All these things are 
imagination, not in the present moment, imagination. They're not reality, present moment, reality. They're fantasy, not present moment, fantasy. That's how we know we're suffering. That becomes an imagined state. Is becomes not is, it becomes will be or was. And it becomes something horrible or imagined or thought up or fantasized or clung on to as the thing that has to happen. So, so we've gone through quite a bit here. <clears throat> we went through those six steps of dependent arising. We narrowed that down to desire and attachment. And then we narrowed that down to the simple phrase, this is it. Being present with what is, our experience of what is in this moment and let that reveal the truth of itself right here and now. Wonderful. Okay, so that is the quick tour through the second noble truth. <laughs> ah. ah, time to take a breath. You know, as you can see, we could spend so much time practicing that. We're just hinting at the first crackly onion skin of it. Uh, and I hope that we'll be able to come back to, to that for, for um, some repeated practice. So we can make that a truth that we know, because that, that truth can set us free. Okay, now the third noble truth, liberation exists. We've seen suffering, We've seen the path of suffering. Now what do we do? Well, the first thing we have to do is get a sense of what it means to be liberated. Now, this one is going to be very short because it's almost impossible to say something meaningful about it. Remember the three-step the three method that we've been using uh, to, to look at these, these concepts? The first step is we think about it with our heads we, we take the concepts, we chew on them with our mind, we evaluate them, we use our logic and, and, and you know, use that human capability. And then if we assent to that and think it's a good idea, then we take it into our bodies and we experience it directly for ourselves. We know it as a physical reality in the present moment. And then once we know that, then we solidify that by knowing what we know, by remembering that we know this in our bodies. We know this to be true. And we do that so that we can then use that, that information, that experience to start to change our habits. So the third noble truth that liberation exists has very little to do with our minds. There's, there's almost nothing I can say about this. This knowing this liberation is almost entirely a second and third step reality that we have to do that we have to know this for ourselves there's just not that much to think about and the reason is is because when you know this for yourself there is not a thinker present this truth does not liberate the i that thinks it's actually a liberation from the i from the whole paradigm of 
I am thinking, I am liberated. That's, I am liberated is an impossible statement. So we just can't think about it. But what, what I wanna suggest is that you already know what liberation tastes like. You're a human being, it's your birthright. You already know this. Liberation is what's left when we stop suffering. It's like the air that the bird is flying in. When the bird stops flying, the air is still there. When you stop suffering, liberation is still there. Liberation was there the whole time you were suffering too. We were just lost in our suffering and so we didn't even notice it. So I invite you to recall um, some moments in your life when you may have tasted liberation. So maybe you tasted liberation when you saw the beauty of the snow falling. There were no words or concepts necessary. Maybe you were just able to stand and see the snowflakes falling. The wordless knowing that didn't require any thought. It didn't require that someone be watching the snow falling. There was just awareness of snow falling. Maybe you touched this liberation when you witnessed something hugely powerful, like a birth or a death. It can kind of shock us out of our usual mind habits and we find ourselves mouth hanging open in awe. No words necessary. Maybe you've touched this when you become completely absorbed in something like listening to music. This happens for me when I go to the symphony with my mom. We, we've been doing this for years. We go down to Seattle and go to the Seattle symphony. And I'll just close my eyes and there's no listener and set of musicians. There's just music. There's no thinking about the music. There's no evaluation of the music. It's just music. When we're in this liberated state, thought ceases and being present comes forward. I remember one time I was on retreat uh, and we were walking in the woods and there was a, a break in the woods and it was winter time. And over, over our heads came uh, a group of uh, Canada geese squawking and they were not very, not very high at all. They were just at the, at the treetop level and they came squawking over us and you could hear them coming from a long way off. And there, there we were, this group of us standing out in the, in the cold and the, these geese came flying up and over. And I was just, I wasn't, there was no John watching the geese. There was just the, the geese 
flying, the energy of the geese flying. And I put up my arms like this and I just, I, w I was the geese. And my teacher who was rather reluctant to um, say words of encouragement, she turned to me and she pointed at me and she said, precisely. And I think what she was pointing there was that my experience in that moment was not of, of John seeing geese or hearing geese. It was simply geese. It was no concepts necessary. It was simply the experience of <laughs> coming over and the, the movement of the animals in the air. There's no separation. When you're in that state of liberation, you're not thinking about it. You are it. This is why there's, this is why so little can be said about this because saying anything about this is really one eye talking to another eye. And that's not how we experience it. So sometimes this experience of liberation happens all at once. And the, the, the Zen koans are filled with these kinds of stories of this instantaneous liberation. There's one about a, a, a master and a student that the master sees that the student is on the verge of having this kind of an experience. And they're, they're meeting at night and the student has a candle in his hand. And as the student is about to step out through the door into the darkness, the Zen master blows out his candle. And the student steps out into the darkness, not knowing what he's stepping out into. And he had this moment of liberation. So the koans are filled with this kind of stuff. <clears throat> I suspect that that's rather rare that people experience it that way. I think most often this kind of an experience of liberation sneaks up on us a bit at a time. Little short, and then it's gone. Um, someone had an experience like this and, and um, Robert Aiken, who was a, uh, one of my grandfather Zen teachers, uh, likened, said to this person um, that that he'd had this experience. It was like going into into a room and, and lighting a candle, and and uh, Robert Aiken said, "Well, did you stop and look around?" And that that image has stayed with me. You know that this little this little bit of light comes on, and what do you do with it? And I think the an apt analogy for how this works is that. You have an experience like this, and now you know it in your body. You know this for yourself. And now there's one candle lit in that room. But this is gonna happen again, and you're gonna light another candle. And it's gonna happen again, and you're gonna light another candle. And pretty soon, the cumulative effect of lighting those little candles allows you to take a look around the room in a different way. It's an imperfect analogy because there's a you looking around and there's a room and that's not the way it happens. But it's the best I can do 
I don't know how else to talk about this. <laughs> so liberation is not the goal of our practice. Liberation is a side effect of our practice. It comes on us in, in a kind of grace. And it comes and it goes. And we have no control over it. If we are grasping after experiences of liberation, that almost guarantees that we won't have them. And when we do have them, if we grasp after them staying around, they will go away. And this is something we can't control, but we can, by practicing, create the conditions by which it does happen. When we start out in practice particularly, we might think that this is the goal. But this goal of becoming liberated is the ego's goal. If the ego is saying, I want this to be the, I want to be the most liberated person I can be, and I want everyone to know that I'm liberated, I want to be really great. I want to be famous for it. I want to go down in history as the liberated person. Well, that's the ego's, that's the ego's imagination of it. My experience of these, of, these, of these moments is that they bit by bit whittle away my ego. They whittle away my whole sense of what it means to be John. Every time this happens, there's less John. But what is increasingly me is this broad sense of self that I don't have to defend, I don't have to perpetuate, I don't have to fear losing. It's not dependent on this personality and this body and of me being alive or dead. It's a sense of self that transcends self. So I guess that's all I can really say. Um, my hope is that for each of us, these experiences will come and go and we will let go of them just like we let go of the back pain that comes and goes. Or we let go of that experience of seeing the snowfall as it comes and goes. It's just another moment. Practicing with this is it makes those moments inevitable. And it makes them so that they are no big deal. Okay, so those are really all we're going to do with the second and third noble truths. Um, next week, we will pick up the path that leads to liberation. It's called the Noble Eightfold Path. And this we can sink our teeth into. This we can talk about and think about and come up with strategies for practicing. So this is a little bit more that we can you know, do up here, um, a little bit less um, kind of floaty out there and woo-woo sounding, um, a little bit more accessible. So what I'd like to do now is I'd like to uh, turn off the recording so that those of us who are gathered here can, can share 
um, uh, whatever's coming up in relation to what we've talked about, what I've talked about tonight, or just in, in relation to our practice in general. So when you'd like to speak, you can just unmute yourself and then we'll, uh, no one else will speak and you'll, you'll let us know that you're done by it when you mute yourself again. Okay, uh, thank you all.